Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy to have everyone along this week again, and a special welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, or any of you who've just recently subscribed to the podcast. I really do appreciate that. Before we get going today, I just want to quickly remind you to subscribe to the podcast YouTube channel. Uh, Just search Tom Schumer Podcast on YouTube and you should find it. Full episodes of the podcast are there along with the video versions of the interviews. We usually post it a few weeks after the podcast goes live, but they can be really great for PD sessions. So if you hear something in the interview that you think would make for a good clip to show, show that clip, stimulate some dialogue amongst your colleagues, uh, go ahead and subscribe to that. As I said last week, I'm also hoping to add some other shorter, single topic, quick hitter kind of videos as well this year. So, so stay tuned for that. I'm also planning to do a few live sessions in the near future. So subscribing to the channel will keep you alerted to that. And also Facebook. Um, this year I've done a few Facebook live sessions and I may schedule a few Facebook live conversations for the podcast. So if you haven't done so already, search and maybe like Shimmer Education on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, uh, to keep up to date on that. So, and look, I might as well mention Instagram. Uh, podcast is on Instagram as well. So it's at Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. So no shortage of social media platforms. Um, your listening and subscribing to the podcast means a lot. And I really do appreciate the support. And if you feel up to spreading the word on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever, I would greatly appreciate that. Again, just wanting to continue to expand the conversation and expand the listening audience. So I appreciate that. Today, I'm really excited to have my friend and educational force, Rick Warmly, joining me for the interview. His influence in education, of course, is well-documented, and we had what I thought was an awesome conversation. So really excited about that. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to address the topic of atypical assessment methods and uh, looking at different formats and the way that kids can show what they know, especially when you're talking about a virtual environment. So specifically, I want to provide some details around the idea of engineering conversations and also observation in general. So that's the plan for today. I'm really excited about this episode, so let's get to it. We'll have my conversation with Rick Warmly coming up shortly, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with some thoughts about the responsibility that surrounds professional judgment and on a larger scale, professional autonomy. I think one of the aspects that separates a job from a profession is the level of professional judgment and decision making. And nowhere do you find that more in education than around assessment and grading when teachers have to use their professional judgment to make indirect scoring inferences to decide the degree to which a student has either met a singular learning outcome or the collection of learning goals relevant to the reporting period. Now we talked on a couple of previous podcasts about rubrics and how we develop clear criteria to make those judgments. Rubrics aren't really a choice per se, meaning we don't just flip a coin to decide yay or nay to a rubric. Of course, we we don't make rubrics for the sake of making rubrics. We, We make rubrics to make performance criteria transparent. Now, indirect scoring inferences are more the norm now, or at least should be, because learning goals, outcomes, standards, etc., are becoming increasingly more sophisticated and far less binary. They aren't really, unless you're at the very youngest grade levels, they're no longer about right, wrong, yes, no, can, can't types of goals. 
They are standards that really can be presented and also examined along gradations of quality, which is what a rubric in any of its forms really does describe. So unless we lower the collective cognitive rigor of the standards and outcomes, the need for teachers to use their judgment is not going away. And of course, the idea of using your professional judgment or professional autonomy on a larger scale, it's not just about assessment. It's about so many other aspects of the job. Now, Tom Gusky, who, of course, you recall from episode one, was my first guest on the podcast, and Leanne Young, who will be a future guest on the podcast in the near future, wrote an article about this in 2016. It appeared in Educational Leadership in the April edition, and it was entitled, Grading, Why You Should Trust Your Judgment. Now, a few salient points from that article. One, despite their many advantages, computerized grading programs also have drawbacks. In particular, their pervasive use has caused teachers to doubt their professional judgment. Two, Tom and Leanne say, we should trust our minds, not our machines. Because three, computers only use numbers. They know nothing of the individual students who produce those numbers, the learning environment, or the nature of the quality of the assessments. So to that point, the fourth is that that broader knowledge more often leads teachers to make fair, accurate, and meaningful judgments. One thing I've been saying for years, and I may have mentioned this on a previous pod, but I don't really remember, uh, because it seems like the more episodes I put out, the easier it's becoming to forget uh, what I said before. But uh, anyway, one of the things that I've been saying is uh, for years is that the electronic gradebook has been simultaneously the best and worst invention in education. We've never been more clinically efficient, but we've lost the art of grading, right? We've lost the art of our professional judgment. And what was unfortunate was that the Renaissance and assessment in the late 90s and early 2000s coincided with the tech explosion during that same period. So that kind of made us sort of skew toward those electronic gradebooks. Now we need to, if you haven't already, recapture our professional judgment and our professionalism in general. Now, of course, I don't mean that teachers aren't professional. They are, of course. What I'm referring to is our professionalism in terms of using our judgment. Electronic gradebooks have caused many to simply either defer to the calculation or for others, it's actually provided cover. It's provided an opportunity to hide behind the numbers, if you will. And with a shrug, we could sort of say, well, I didn't give that to you. That's how the grade came out. And with autonomy comes great responsibility, or so it should. Professional autonomy or judgment shouldn't just be awarded, so to speak, unchecked, because you've been hired as a teacher. It shouldn't automatically mean, hey, use your judgment and your autonomy. See you in 30 years. Uh, that's, to me, not the point. We have to work at developing our judgment to be consistent. We have to ensure our autonomy is in alignment with the larger goals of the system. Now, back in 2009, Linda Darling-Hammond offered these important and, and maybe somewhat sobering thoughts. First, she said, quote, For the occupations that require discretion and judgment in meeting the unique needs of clients, the profession guarantees the competence of members in exchange for the privilege and professional control over work structure and standards of practice. 
end quote. Now, I understand there are many teachers who feel they don't have control over their work structure or their standards of practice, but that is often what negotiations are about, contracts, collective agreements, etc. And I know that for some of you, there, you, you are in situations where you feel you have little to no control over that. I get that. But we still have the responsibility inside the classroom. So what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to guarantee our competence, to continue to learn, to grow, and to make sure that we are positioned to use our judgment, our autonomy, the right way. Now, Tom and Leanne concluded their article with the following statement, quote, teachers who trust their own minds, knowing that informed colleagues would likely make the same judgment, offer grades that communicate meaningful and reliable information to all, end quote. Now, did you catch that middle part? Knowing that informed colleagues would likely make the same judgment. So let's break that down. Knowing. Well, that would have to imply, infer, etc., that there was some sort of collaborative effort to work together. So there would have to be knowledge of what one another are doing. Informed colleagues, okay, informed, meaning they must have the fluency, the capacity, and the understanding to make the judgments that we're asking them to make. And then same judgment, right? That speaks to the reliability since the same learning goals are being assessed, right? So there's reliability amongst the team. Now, the second passage from Linda Darling-Hammond is as follows. Quote, Professional authority does not mean legitimizing the idiosyncratic or whimsical preferences of individual classroom teachers. It is precisely because practitioners operate autonomously that safeguards to protect the public interest are necessary. End quote. Professional judgment or autonomy does not reserve one's right to go rogue and indulge your idiosyncratic or your whimsical preferences, especially when it comes to making judgments about the degree to which students have learned. Now, I trust teachers, but we're up against it as society has a history of not trusting teacher decision-making. You see this especially in places where there is a heavy emphasis and influence of standardized testing. So what are we to do? Well, we can complain about it, because, of course, complaining always works, you know, hashtag sarcasm. <laughs> or we can do one of two things, and likely we need to do both. First, we need to raise our game when it comes to our professional learning and growth as it relates to using our judgment. While my experience has shown me the vast majority of teachers take their professional learning seriously, it only takes a few. And it shouldn't be up to just the principal or the district office to hold people accountable. Don't let your colleagues off the hook. Because the dismissiveness with which a few, and I want to emphasize the few because we're talking about the vast minority here, the dismissiveness with which some treat professional learning is undercutting all of us as a profession. Now, the second thing is to make our already raised games more overt and obvious, so to speak. Now, most in the public are ignorant to two things. One, how challenging the job of teaching is, COVID or no COVID, and, and sure, uh, with some of the home learning environments and distance learning and remote learning and all the things that we've been dealing with through COVID, many parents have gained a, a real appreciation for how challenging the job is. But most in the general public don't really understand the intricacies of the job. And two, 
They don't understand how much teachers invest in their professional growth once they're hired. We need to make that more obvious to the school community and the community at large. Do I wish that weren't the case? Of course. But what I wish and what is are two different things. The one thing we are not good at in education is PR, partially because we shouldn't have to be, and partially because our sole focus is on learners. But until we decide to counter the narratives that are out there that are running amok, nothing is going to change. And I'm not talking about countering it with defensiveness. We can't keep telling those outside the system, oh, you don't have the whole picture, but then never give them the whole picture. Our judgments have to be defensible, of course, but our judgments are what make us the professionals we are. We need to reclaim that and then present it proactively, make it overt and obvious, to show how we will ensure that our professional judgments remain professional and won't devolve into some unreliable or indefensible decision-making. Let me finish with a little bit of math. And I'm going to use the example of a high school teacher. Now, the disclaimer for this exercise is that, of course, situations vary across schools and people have had various amounts of experience. And I get that. This is just ballpark math. Okay, so this is a hypothetical. It's ballpark math, but you'll understand the point I'm trying to make. Let's start with a high school teacher that's taught for 15 years. Okay, 15 years and has taught an average of seven classes per year. So we're talking about 105 total classes over the course of the 15 years. And let's put an average of 30 students per class. And again, there might be more or less, but let's put an average of 30 students per class. So that's 3,150 students. Now let's say the teacher utilizes 25 assignments to determine the student's overall proficiency. That's 78,750 student samples. And I didn't even add in the informal moments, the formative assessment, the feedback, all of the other aspects. So I think you could conservatively double it to say that after 15 years, a teacher has probably consumed somewhere around 157,500 student samples. No one will ever convince me that teachers don't have the experience and the professional know-how to judge proficiency along a few gradations of quality. We have to stop hiding behind the numbers, stop handing over our professional judgment to a computerized spreadsheet, and start reclaiming that which truly makes our profession a profession. I'm thrilled to have Rick Warmly joining me today for the interview. Rick, of course, is a globally recognized educational leader and force in so many areas, including middle-level education, uh, differentiation, and, of course, assessment and grading, and the list goes on. Um, I'm going to give you the quick rundown, listeners, of the biography. Rick is one of the first nationally board-certified teachers in America. Uh, much of Rick's work has been featured uh, by numerous national media outlets, including in a you know, featured on Good Morning America. He is a columnist for AMLE Magazine and a frequent contributor to ASCD's Educational Leadership Magazine. Rick, of course, is the author of several books, including the award-winning Meet Me in the Middle, as well as several bestsellers, including Day One and Beyond, and of course, the wildly popular Fair Isn't Always Equal, Assessment and Grading in the Differentiated Classroom. Rick has 
been a presenter and a featured workshop presenter all over the world, literally all over the world. And he has been the recipient of several awards over the course of his careers. And listeners, that is just the abridged version of the biography. This man has had an absolutely ridiculous career. So uh, Rick, I am thrilled that you're able to join us. So Rick, welcome to the Tom Shimmer podcast. Hey, thank you very much. I feel like this is a stepping stone to going intergalactic. <laughs> intergalactic, I love that. Um, we were just talking earlier about uh, when I was when I was putting together the biography and looking over to sort of the things you've done. It, it was reminded when I looked at all the places you've presented around the world about our dinner in Beijing, where we just happened to be in China together in 2016, and uh, here we are halfway around the world. And uh, just you know, minutes from one another and being able to have dinner, so that was great. And I'm uh, just that was a good, just a good memory. That's a synergy that it's so rare, but it, it's so exciting, and you feel like ah, let's do this more often. That's right. That's combine right. our we, powers for good and not evil. <laughs> it certainly breaks up the uh, the uh, the eating alone aspect of the job. That's for sure. Truly, um, truly, absolutely. Okay, so Rick, let's let's jump in. We are definitely going to um, get to some some educational topics, but. I really feel like I have to start with the events of January 6th and the attack on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Uh, you live just 20 miles from, from D.C., from the White House and, and the Capitol. And so this, you know, in some ways must have really hit close, home, close to home to you. Um, I know for so many of us, even those of us outside of the United States, it was an emotionally jarring day. And the images and the accounts of what happened are, are things that will go down in history. Uh, the, the attack has been universally condemned outside of those who are trying to spin it or justify it or deflect it. My question to you, Rick, is, is not how do you feel about the events, because I think we all sort of know how we feel about the events. But as an American citizen, as, as someone who lives very close to the Capitol, uh, how are you feeling about, you know, the events in, in the wake of what happened in January 6th, how, how are you personally feeling about the situation and circumstances currently? Uh, you know, initially I'm just extremely upset, very disappointed. You know, when I work with people around the world, I usually, when I first arrive, I usually say, yeah, we're interested in your topic today, but can you just answer this question, WTF, or more politely, yeah. WTH, you yeah. know, what the heck is going on with you guys in the United States. And it's usually, you know, the past four or five years with the, the, the current administration that it's about to leave. And, you know, why would somebody do that? You know, this policy and that policy. And I have to explain, you know, I really don't know. And my Republican friends are stumped as well because they feel like it's a severing, it's a splitting of the Republican party of which Trump and the current administration, of course, is supposed to be the head of it. And it's inconsistent. It's out of alignment, you know, with that. And, you know, my, I'll be the first to tell you we're an imperfect union. And I think that ego has gotten a lot in the way. Like, I really re am repelled by this notion of, you know, they're number one, we're, the United States is number one, you know, and it's exclusive nation and so on. It, it, that's not the thing we want to be known for. We want to know for compassion and intelligence and problem solving and uh, and a generosity of the world with agriculture and, and anything else we can possibly do. But we've got this idea that we're some kind of elitist thing and it's been a comeuppance. So now the question is whether or not our systems can weather and navigate such troubling waters as they are. And I'm really struck by, you know, other people have said, said this, so I'm not the originator of this thought, but every generation I think sits there and goes, 
oh my gosh, you know, this is who we are. We're not like this, but really we are. And we have to lift the rug and look what we've been sweeping under this whole time. And I do think a lot of it is racist in nature. Mm. I do think that there's also people who are struggling economically and they're threatened and they're in survival mode and they feel like, oh no, we gotta take this over. I'm very concerned about uh, QAnon uh, kind of radicalizing people. And these are people who don't have hope elsewhere so they put their hope in this thing. And so the United States needs to get better at finding, at being worthy of our citizens' hope right. and aspirations. And we're not quite there yet. So we need some leaders who, who can do that. And I think, you know, past presidents have been better than, you know, the current one right now. And most of my Republican friends are like, why is our Republican leader doing this? So I don't know a lot of people that are supportive, although obviously the heck of a lot of people voted for him there. When I try to explain it, I'm also struck by what if I was in the classroom, because I'm out of the classroom right now. What if I was in the classroom trying to explain, you know, when a leader is, is, is quite a bit narcissistic, narcissistic yeah. in what he does, and it's not so much about the constitution, the country, as it is about him. And yet we tell students that, you know, the presidential office is an honorable office, our government is sound, we have, you know, uh, checks and balances and all this stuff, and yet, it falls apart, you know, from time to time. So I'm very concerned about people who don't have a savvy in logical fallacy. They don't understand that that's an inconsistent thing and they're trying to prove a point and it's ultimately weak and that people are duped by, again, fake news, but not having that intelligent consumer savvy. And then I did some work with Sandra Day O'Connor and her work on iJustice, uh, iCivic, excuse me, which is a program to teach the next generation uh, really, truly, what is what are the five or six protections under the First Amendment? You know, to, to understand how these things really work, because a lot of people are truly illiterate with it. They interviewed adults and they didn't know and understand a lot of this stuff. What are your rights and responsibilities when you're stopped by a police officer for a traffic violation? That sort of thing. People just didn't have an idea. And there was just this sense of it's easier just to rebel, which is kind of a a cowardly thing to do rather than to dig in and really try to understand it and respond constructively. Right. So I, I realize that people are in dire circumstances. We've had a huge increase in opioid abuse, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, totally get that. And people are so scared and frustrated. This might be a manifestation of that fear and that anxiety. I totally get that, but it's not the way we claim to be. And so now if we claim this, then let's, Stop, stop minimizing our hypocrisy and get closer and closer to our values and have integrity again. But that, that takes courage of conviction to see it through the tough times. Yeah. And I don't think everybody has the supports they need to do that. Like, I, you know, we're in the States, at least in most places in the States, we're terrible at supporting people who are dealing with mental illness mm. and it's a stigma. And we need to absolutely change that dramatically. So, so people get the help they need and don't turn to, to other vices and things as a way to cope. So I don't know, I have mixed feelings, initially terrified yeah. uh, because we live so close. And what we did here in our neighborhood is, you know, we have a internet just for our neighborhood and everybody sent out, yes, my brother who works security at the Capitol or the National Guard or whatever, they're safe, they're fine. We have a lot of friends who work downtown. And we're like, are you okay? Did you get home okay? And, you know, one friend um, had to stay over in a hotel. Wow. And uh, at night, because he couldn't get out of the city, things were locked down. He was worried about this stuff. So he stayed over, but he happened to stay over in a hotel. 
you know, that was being used by a lot of the rioters. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, you know, they were uproarious, they were celebrating, and he was angered. But, yeah. you know, if you say something, then it's just all directed at you. Yeah. So what do you do? And so his place was, I will go in my room and try to keep safe, but I will work towards, you know, this not being what happens, you know, on a daily basis, or is the only uh, turn that people have when they feel like they've been wronged by their yeah. government to some degree. So anyway, I, I guess yeah. that's a mixed message there, but it's kind of where I am. Well, it, you are where you are for sure. You know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, obviously for myself as a Canadian, I think sometimes, and, and I made mention of this in last week's podcast, which is I think sometimes, and I understand why this isn't meant to be a shot, but I think sometimes uh, Americans forget the, the impact that instability in the United States has around the world. Um, mm. Every democracy looks to the United States for stability. Um, and, and while your comments are, are fair in terms of stop saying we're the greatest country or all of those different things, <laughs> there, there is the beacon of democracy and freedom that, that uh, you know, the, the, the longest undefended border uh, is between Canada and the United States. So our countries are very close and, and we look yeah. to the United States. And it was an emotionally jarring day for even people who don't live in the United States who aren't citizens because, because we know that there are you know, global actors that would look to take advantage of, of that kind of instability. The other thing is you were responding, Rick, that I want to pick up on, which I've seen several times, is this notion of how many times can we keep, and this isn't exclusive to the situation last week, this would be ubiquitous in anyone's life or any organization's life. How many times can you keep saying, this is not who we are, yeah. until you start to realize this is who we are? And this is what we have to reconcile because that do you do you think that acknowledgement is what's going to be necessary to bring the unity and it seems a lot of people are trying to push unity and and healing right now, without there being that step in between which is the acknowledgement and the awareness of of where things currently are right now thoughts on that. Oh yeah I mean everybody has an inherited narrative of what they think is normal and preferred and when you pose conflict to that, people are going to get very defensive really fast because you pull the rug out from underneath them. Mm -hmm. And so now what do they hold on to in an insecure world? And you've, you've removed that guardrail, so to speak. So the idea, you know, so much of our country has been rewritten by people who were in power at the time. So they had this idea of like blacks and whites and, and Japanese and, and, uh, and others from around the world who are immigrants, Native American people, First Nations, and so on. And like, I, I put them in this classification. And now you're telling me that my whole perception was wrong and that they actually were doing all those other things. You know, I'm not comfortable with that because I'm already scared as an individual yeah. human. Yeah. And so I think that is probably going to be one of the big turns from 2020. The big outcomes from it uh, is, is racism, but also uh, the politics. You know, it has been so toxic. And I, you know, I'm struck by so much of what happened during the 1960s in the mm -hmm. States, uh, it was civil unrest and so on, and what was going on. And there are some parallels between what, you know, that and what's going on now. Disillusionment, yeah. you know, oh no, I now have to rip up, dismantle my aspirational model, my exemplar of what I thought was. Mm -hmm. And when you, you know, when you, when you confront anyone, let alone like educators too, with their hypocrisy, it doesn't always go well because we tend to irrationally rationalize things. Right. And now we're forced to look at something that is distasteful, unsettling, ugly, uh, and realize, oh, we've been just operating in hopes that no, no one would find out that other stuff or pay attention to it. No, look over here, please. 
because that's no, we're not over there. We're over here. You, you keep your eyes over here. Nothing to see there, people. And now we open it up, and it hurts. It's it changes, painful. It's hard, and it's no longer comforting. And in golly, in a pandemic, an economic crisis, and the political toss-ups back and forth, we want comfort food, and we're not getting it. And so, who's really going to survive? Is the ones who are strong enough to be to realize that it's messy. It's a, and you're trying to impose disorder on. You try, to, try to impose order on disorder and you're not comfortable with ambiguity, it's going to drive you nuts. Yeah. So people are flexible and willing to say, no, I'm willing to do the hard work. Yes, I can become aware, but then how do I make that actionable to do something about it? Yeah. That's incredibly hard. So how do I confront neighbors, friends, relatives who say, who spouse something that is just abhorrent to me ethically or to say, oh, no, I need to keep the peace. Well, the time for that is, is over. You need to find the constructive way, right. maintain relationship if you want, but to say, no, you know what? We're, we can be better than this. Let's aspire together and let me hold you to accountable yeah. uh, to a common humanity and a sense of mercy and compassion and grace that these comments of yours are not espousing. But you've said before, that's what you want to do. Right. So the idea that we're wildly, hugely inconsistent in our own philosophies and values, we have to accept. It's not a perfect thing. We're imperfect people running an imperfect system. Right. Um, but can we extend forgiveness to each other? And again, our, be very dis, disagree on things, but still have civil discourse is right. huge. And I think one of the big outcomes of that is that we're going to renew courses on civics and, and civil discourse in our schools. Yeah. Because and debate, forensic competitions, as opposed to turning to fists and right. violence and vandalism, uh, to pull that off, I think uh, will be a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the idea of you know upsetting the apple cart isn't always a bad thing. This one is terrifying and inappropriate, but a little bit of upsetting it, yeah, that we're due for that, and it's a healthy yeah. thing. It's it's you know as you're talking there, you're talking about civil discourse, and it it you know, the idea that it's time to push back, it's time to speak up, it's time to confront, but it's not the time to do those things in the manner with which others are, you yeah. know, asserting their position. It's, it's, it's a way, you know, the art of this, I think, is going to be how we confront and how we speak up without resorting to the tactics that got us upset in the first place. I think that's and, going and to I be I think a lot of them don't have the skills to do that. And right. we, we need to get those skills in their hands. Yeah. Can we just pivot now a little bit to school? Because, you know, everything today, obviously, we've been talking, everything today feels political. And uh, I said, you know, last week on the podcast, if, if a once in a century uh, pandemic can become political, then anything can become political. Um, so when it comes to now, sticking with the events of January 6th and, and the subsequent climate, but, but focusing on teachers and schools, you know, a lot of questions came out on January 7th, or even the evening of the 6th, which is how am I going to talk about this, right? So now, mm. students emotions, their opinions, um, you know, some students will have some very definitive positions about what happened. And, and some in the public feel that teachers and educators in general, really shouldn't get political at all. So at the same time, you know, what happened, and what the current climate is, is so intense, that you know, to not talk about it would feel so inauthentic and disjointed. So my question to you is, um, and, and maybe you've been asked this question already, which is, you know, how, how do teachers and educators, principals, how do we talk about the truth of what happened um, in this current climate without becoming political or without becoming overly political? How do we talk about what happened on January 6th? I think 
you cannot escape education being political. And the first step is to accept that all education is political to some degree. If I choose not to comment, that's a choice. And it's a political choice not to comment, not to get in there. If I choose to comment a certain way, that's political as well. So first we have to realize that it is political and you, you can't avoid being or not being political. It's, it's just gonna happen. But the other thing is, can we be sensitive to different viewpoints and can we model that in front of kids? What I find is that students, particularly in middle school and high school, are let, let alone the, the, the bottom line fundamental questions of a primary child, but in young adolescents and adolescents, they want a model of how to think about things. And they turn to us as exemplars of how to think, you know, how to, how to, how, to, how do you navigate such a difficult time and, and, and a challenging thing? And they want to sort their thinking. And a lot of kids and some adults to some degree, they sort their thinking based on what people they respect say and what they do. And I think we need to model how to do that. I disagree with this policy and here's why, but you, I understand that some people might have this viewpoint and here's why they have that. So I wonder how we could progress together is a, is a legitimate thing. Now, I've been wrestling with this for decades when we talk about racism and uh, homophobia and Muslim bans and things like that, because people are saying, well, Mr. Warmly, you know, what do you think? You know, students will come up and ask that. Right. Uh, transgender use of, of bathrooms, that, that sort of thing. And I say, well, you know, there's really a couple of things there. One is, are you asking me as an employee of the Commonwealth of Virginia, or are you asking me as an individual voter? <laughs> tell me what your mom and dad said first, and then I'll tell you what I say, right. just so I have the context uh, as, as we're doing that. And, um, and then I'll say, you know, sometimes if it's really contentious, I'll ask mom and dad, you know, is it appropriate? Is it okay for me to have this conversation with your child if we need to? But in general, I think that we need to be the models of how do you constructively uh, deal with this in your own life and disagree with people because students are desperate, they're starved for that. And if they don't have that model, they'll resort to inappropriate acts, you know, to, to right. uh, negotiate this. And there'll be nothing to build on there as, as you go through and do it. So the idea of if we have a really strong disagreement, let's vote, let's do something, let's change the legislature, you know, that sort of thing, not right. turn to violence. And that I would also remind them that what are a thousand other ways you could have done this besides physical violence or vandalism uh, to do this. And what do you do if you're just so distraught and in such despair, you feel like there's no choice but to do something really radicalizing or harmful to others? Is, is that, what, how do we respond to that in our lives? Some of that is just simple, you know, self-regulation and executive function, you know, things that, that kind of come together and work very nicely with students. And we can certainly teach those things. But I have colleagues that I respect very much that say, you should never, you should always remain neutral. And I think there's some common humanity virtues of which we don't need to remain neutral. Like it is a positive to be compassionate. It is a positive to extend mercy to others. It is a positive to try to understand from somebody else's point of view where they're coming from before you make your response. To try to, li I listen so that I understand like Stephen Covey, but instead of listening just to make sure I can form ammunition for my rebuttal which is a very different way of doing things. So we can teach kids those skills and we can model them in front of them. And we can also just sit in sadness, literally just being quiet. And if we're back in the classroom, maybe an arm around the shoulder and just sit in sorrow together and saying, we're sharing this humanity together. And I have no answers, but I'm willing to listen to you share what upsets you so you know, about this mm -hmm. is actually a great gift is to be that listener. I always thought that, one of the greatest tools a teacher ever had was the, the ear. 
the listening ear. And we yeah. so rarely use it. You know, we just prejudge right away because we got to go. We got to keep momentum and we don't have time for this nonsense here. But truly just listening to them, that means their voice was important enough to be heard mm -hmm. and that they make good company and that what they say matters. That might be the way that we kind of help orchestrate that. But if they do press us for our opinion, I think we could probably frame it in such a way as this is what I believe. And it's mm -hmm. based on my experience and my narrative. Uh, but you might have a different experience, a different narrative. And I really want to understand that. Mm -hmm. So here I am. I'm going to ask you questions and, and behave in such a way that shows that I value the entire identity that is you rather than dismissive of it because it's not my identity, if that right. makes sense. It, it does. And, and the idea of asking questions, I learned that lesson the hard way years ago, early in my career, about being too quick to answer um, you know, a question from a student without asking clarifying questions or, you know, why do you ask what, what is, you know, what, where are you going with this? And I think that you can get a greater sense of, of maybe they're just, maybe it's just an inquiry, or maybe they are trying to, you know, a high school student, maybe trying to entice you into a political debate or something like that. And I think you're right. I mean, there are certain topics that just represent basic humanity and the, the idea that there's both sides is kind of a false equivalency, but I, yeah, you know, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can debate economic policy. You can say, okay, well, I, I think this, and I think that, and, and there's a fair debate to be had, but there are some things that really shouldn't be up for debate. And, and by asserting our position at, at some point collectively, we, we force people in, in some respects, respectfully and with finesse, we force them to justify these inhumane perspectives to, to policies that just seem to be on paper, you know, that idea. So I love the idea of, of, the fact that we 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 honor the students, you know, question and we honor their inquiry, and the idea of contacting the parents as well, I think, is a, a great strategy. So I think it's very thoughtful. I want to shift now to uh, teaching during COVID. You know, yeah. with all all that's happened, everything you described in the in the in the earlier part of this interview um, was, you know, the economics, the opioid crisis, the political yeah. climate. Oh, oh, by the way, a once a century pandemic. Uh, yeah. So here we go. So many of us, I know you have and, and others and Tom Gusky and others, we, we've been talking about the potential silver linings that might come from the pandemic educationally. Uh, you know, no one is saying that this is a good thing. Um, let's just get that right. Uh, but from your perspective, what educational good things are you seeing emerge, grow, or expand during this incredibly challenging time? Well, a couple of things. The first thing that about which I'm most excited is that I think a lot of teachers were teaching through personality and through physical environment more than pedagogy, you know, the, the, the science and craft of it. And now they realize I can't just do the things I normally relied upon to manage the class, but also to engage students uh, to have a really effective lesson and just jam it through a camera lens and suddenly comes out the other side and the kids are learning just like they ever did before. Mm -hmm. So a part of their pedagogy is, you know, I need to actually go back to the fundamentals of how the brain learns. Like, oh man, I have to do a lot more with relationships because I was forming relationships by just talking to them in the hallways in between or whatever it might have been, the, in the right. corridors. And I can't do it anymore. I don't have that interaction anymore. And then I was just assuming that when you came into the institution of school and came in and sat down at a desk, all the protocols just kind of settled in with you and we were ready to rock and roll. And now I got, oh, wait a minute. We have to figure out a way to conduct ourselves and it might be slightly differently you know, through the lens and distancing. So the idea of people renewing their focus on cognitive science 
and how the brain learns. Literally, what do 13 year old, how do 13 year olds best learn and how's that different than eight year olds or freshmen versus seniors, you know, in high school? They, they're different animals. And so I should teach you the way that's developmentally appropriate for them. So a, a real drum, diving deeper into that. Uh, and then how does I, how do I manifest that? So it's almost taking a lot of seasoned veterans back to their roots of being a first time teacher again. Right, how right. do I re reinvent myself in alignment with what I know? Oh, wait a minute. I don't know the latest, so I need to get up to speed. So I think that is a, is a real positive. Another thing that I think is happening is we have curriculum overload. We've tried to jam too much in as it is. Mm -hmm. And what people are finding with remote instruction is that you can't get through the same curriculum. You can't do justice to all of it. And the idea of mastery or competence in something, oh, what a joke. Those mm -hmm. are really misnamed compared mm -hmm. to what we do. So I, I'm taken with uh, Heidi Hayes Jacobs and her four C's that she's been promoting quite a bit this in 2020, that we have to decide what are we going to cut back? What are we gonna cut out? What are we gonna consolidate? And what do we need to create? And the idea that we have to look at standards or learner objectives and outcomes and decide, all right, these are the four to eight most pivotal and leveraging for the whole year. These are secondary level. They're important, but less so. And this mm -hmm. third level, nice to know, but like Elsa, let yeah. it go, let it go, you know, <laughs> as they do that. And, yeah. and we have to put on our, our, our big adult pants and do the heavy lifting and say, this is so leveraging for what's to come. We will spend our time and energy on that because we can't do all of it like we used to. Right. So I think there's going to be a thinning or culling of curriculum that is a positive. Yeah. Uh, less is more in my in my mind. Um, you know, the United States has always been. Let's compare ourselves to other countries, and Korea and Germany and others. I've noticed they in math and science and some others they have far fewer standards than we do. But their kids do better on some of the international tests and so on. They seem to understand it better. And I'm struck by, you know, looking at schools in Japan and, and Korea and in some places like that where they might say, tonight, I want you to do 35 of these practice problems. And, I, you know, well, we would say that to get fast yeah. at it. But they would say, hey, you know what? Here's one problem. Here's, uh, I want you to build a model of the mathematical concept there. In other words, they're at concept attainment night one and two of homework. Night three, they might do you know, extended practice, get efficient, get automatic at it. But the United States, we just tend to, and in other places I've seen in Canada too, you know, yeah. we say, hey, here's the algorithm, now practice a bajillion of them, now we're going to the next thing the next day. Mm -hmm. And there's no chance to really explore it in depth. And so it's a, it's a, a it, it creates an opaque look at it. It's just kind of putting a shine over what we do and saying, oh yeah, that's mastery, but it's really not teaching for a mastery. Right. The, the capacity to spiral back and revisit things to make sure you can carry it forward and you're agile and versatile in its application. You can handle novelty and curveball, whacked right. out applications and notions of it, right. subtlety and finesse, all these different things. Um, I think that's going to be a positive as well, that we're going to do that. And I think that uh, teacher uh, appreciation and wellness, so the mental health of teachers will get yeah. new attention, right. but also appreciation of teachers for what they do, given what has now been happening with uh, so many parents now having to force to teach their children at home or, and schools not being in session. Those are positive. I think the idea of becoming much more divergent and paying attention to one's own intellect and creative self, because that atrophies when you've been teaching the same thing for a few years in a row or longer. Mm -hmm. uh, so I gotta go back and go, oh, I gotta think way differently than I did before and not just rely on what I used to do. Yeah. Uh, and that's okay. And then um, probably the biggest moment for me would be 
to deal with inequities. They've just only exacerbated to a yeah. huge dramatic degree. The, the difference between the haves and the have-nots has only become worse. Right. And that's going to cause people to go, you know what? I used to give it lip service and say Hallmark card platitudes mm -hmm. of niceness about stuff, but I never really put skin in the game, so to speak. I never really dug in and got into it. It's kind of like people who are clicktivists. You know, they they click on something or they forward it like, like I like this, I like that. And they think, well, look at me. I've done my civil duty or civic yeah. duty. Mm -hmm. And no, you have to show up and you right. have to talk to people and you have to do the hard work, the footwork of it. And that's going to be a difference. I think more and more people are going to be willing to do that because it's just revealed so much more and it's so much more of a painful hurt in our heart. But we're going to be looking to leaders to give us skills and routes that are constructive to do that. Mm -hmm. We we really do. Uh, you know, I, I was just, on the one hand, really impressed by how so many school districts responded in the spring with, uh, you know, devices, bandwidth, yeah. uh, all of that stuff. And yet at the same time, you think, it took a global pandemic for us to realize that there's inequities within, you know, for access, yeah, right? Right. You know, we, we could have, we could have been working on high speed internet. We could have been working on devices long before that. So I, I don't want to take anything away from the response that the districts and, and individuals yeah. uh, did because it was commendable and, and some districts re responded in such a rapid manner. It was, it was just incredible and inspiring. You know, but it, you're. I think you're spot on when we talk about the one of the legacies is going to be. We just cannot go back to that again. We cannot have situations where there's the have and have nots. It's not just. I mean, this is a big one. It's not just about racial inequity. It's about socioeconomic oh, yeah. inequity. It's a, it's about all equity and making sure that yeah. there's access to that. And well, and special ed has been hit very hard. Yeah, in particular absolutely. Too. Do you think there's anything that we maybe, um, as you reflect on, because everything was acute in the spring, we had to just respond, and and it was like triage. Let's figure this out. And now we've now we now in some respects we've kind of settled into, uh, you know, many districts have settled into remote learning and have. Uh, is there anything maybe that we overreacted to or got wrong last spring? I don't know that there is. I'm just curious from your perspective. You know, another way of putting this: were there were there any aspects uh, that we overcorrected? and, and are, are now realizing that maybe we didn't have to be so drastic and that things were, would be a little bit more seamless? Or is, again, I'm just truly asking, I don't really have a thought of anything, but what, what are your thoughts around that? Any overcorrections that maybe we, we uh, could settle back yeah, into? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know it, that, that we implemented like suddenly and then realized, oh, we really didn't have to do that mm -hmm. um, as we did that. Um, There might there might be a few things with grading that we kind of ah this is this is all lost we we got it wrong and then on on perspective from the long lens looking back maybe we didn't have to implement it right at that moment or later that sort of thing um, but when it comes to instructional design I think we were all in a place of great fear and we didn't know and so the idea of closing schools down you know right away we don't know what we're gonna do. I think one of the false things we, I think a lot of leadership thought teachers could get up and running over one weekend, you know, to go from live classroom and in that. And so there are so many people I know that do distance learning and they prepare for months and months and months, if not a whole year. Yeah. And then they're ready for their course. And then we as teachers do it in one week or in one weekend. Right. And that was a shock to people that, oh, teachers just can't automatically do it. And I said, well, it's a completely different medium. Mm -hmm. And the things we normally rely upon, we don't have anymore in our fingertips and, you know, that sort of thing. And um, so I think that that's probably 
yeah. you know, what we could do. I, one of the other things that that drives me nuts and I think perpetuates some of our problem is a blind adherence to the the timeline, the school calendar. Yeah. That, oh no, we got to follow the calendar. I mean, no, no, the year has to end when it ends. No, report cards have to come out when they come out, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And th they really don't. And looking back on it, we could have said, no, the school year is going to be extended into the summer. And no, they didn't get it this year, which is, you know, last beginning or that yeah. March, May, April, May time and June time. They didn't get it. So we're going to do an e-portfolio or a digital portfolio that will follow them into the following year. And so now this whole year, you're allowed to go back and learn stuff from last year and get credit for it. Right. That sort of thing. And some schools said, no, we're just going to shut it off. And I don't know that, you know, th th that was a wise thing that now we need to open ourselves up and go, oh, the calendar is actually what's getting in our way of some of this stuff. And of course, that's led to a huge, and that and other things have led to a huge uh, upturn in the number of Fs. And I'm sure you're getting calls like I am. Hey, we have an 83% increase in Fs. Right. What are we doing there? So that gets into the grading conversation if you want to have yeah. that sometime. Yeah. But um, it's a, that's an issue. That would be the only place right now where I thought we might have overcorrected, mm -hmm. uh, at least in my initial response to you. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because that, you know, is one area where I think, you know, in the short term, it was wise to, um, to, to make those decisions about the grading scale. And yet, I worked with a lot of schools in March and April and May that said, you know, Tom, we, we have an all year schedule, we have a linear schedule where we have had enough evidence and we think we can piece together uh, the, the, the fourth quarter of learning that we actually can justify uh, the way we're grading. And, and I think that now, as I, I'm sure you have as well, as I work with teachers and schools and they're getting used to this virtual environment, they're saying to me, you know, Tom, I really am gathering and eliciting high quality evidence from students that, that I can look at along a gradation of quality uh, with a rubric. So I, I think you're onto something there where I think, you know, we had to make some decisions because of the uncertainty. And of course there was the anxiety and stress of it. Sure. But I think we could settle back into, you know, maybe not what we used to do. It depends on what the district was doing uh, or the state or the province, but, but settling into a balance and, and just ensuring at least even during the pandemic, we could still, you know, assess high quality work and grade that work, but making sure that our grading practices are not exacerbating the inequities among students and things like that and putting that fail safe. Oh, I agree with that. You know, just as soon as you say that, I'm, I'm nodding in agreement. Yeah, we're, a lot of teachers are reporting they're getting good assessment. But I worked at the school yesterday, and I, it's been dozens of schools, too, who have also said, I have kids who are just doing Minecraft off to the side and not participating in class, and they're just outright not showing up, and they're not right. turning things in. Mm -hmm. what, do I, what do I do? And so I, I was doing a grading seminar during these conversations for them, and they said, but wait, 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 no. They're just not engaging. They're not doing this stuff. And I said, well, we need to talk about that outside of the world of grading, because that's a different issue. Right. That's, that's an emotion response, it's relationship, it's what do we know about how to, um, how to create tenacity and perseverance, stick-to-itiveness, motivation mm -hmm. in kids. And they're shouldering more and more of the burden of trying to maintain attention. So are we doing more voice and choice and student agency, or are we taking that away from them? And there's not a lot for them there. And there's a lot of other responses to that, not the grading response. Yeah. So just as soon as I'm nodding with you saying, yeah, teachers are getting some good stuff that's evidentiary yeah. Yeah. of performance. There are other schools mm -hmm. who are struggling with, they're not even showing up for my sessions. And so we talk about asynchronous versus synchronous and all of right. that that comes to mind. So I don't, I don't want to generalize that everybody is. And I, I want to point out that most people, a lot of people now, and again, it might be a positive, are realizing, oh, 
I need to pay a lot more attention to student engagement than I did before because I could just assume it before, whereas now I have to earn it, so to speak, and or I have to facilitate it more proactively than I've ever done before. I, I think I think that's the point is that every district and every school has to make a decision. So when you see a news story from Virginia and you see a news story from Texas or you see a news story from California yeah. and they've, they've gone in one direction, that doesn't necessarily mean your district has to go in that direction or your school has to go in that direction because that might be right for their context. Whereas say in Virginia, you're dealing with you know a different situation where you are or are not eliciting great evidence from kids that you're able to look at and examine. So it's one of those things, it's hard to pinpoint a ubiquitous policy for such mm. you know unique nuanced circumstances, um, let's. I want to take a, a bit of a, a big picture, um, a big picture view of education, and just you know you've 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 had a long uh, illustrious career, and I want to ask you a question about where we are in 2021. We're gonna maybe just set COVID aside, of course. I know it's hard to, but we're going to do this for this discussion. Um, what aspect of education are you somewhat disappointed in? Um, you know, I, I know, Rick, that you are a positive, uh, optimistic person. Um, you know, you, you can't, your energy is contagious. I know that. Uh, and, I, and I feel very positive and optimistic too. But I wonder yeah, about, about the aspect of education. Um, did you, what aspect of education did you think we would be much further along with by 2021 than we are right now? Well, I hate to, you know, sing the same tune over and over again, but I totally thought when I started working on grades, ethical grading in 1980-81, that we would have be at a point of ethical grading yeah. uh, and that we would also have be much more uh, well-versed in descriptive feedback and all the techniques associated with that. Mm-hmm. That's one. And secondly, I thought racism in the education, schools can almost be an oasis of really the way society should be if they if they really want to do it. And unfortunately, I think it's just, again, it's exacerbated have and have nots. Some schools have resources, some don't. And I'm very disappointed that we have not evolved as a species to realize the value of putting energy and time, even if you don't have children in the school system locally, right. that putting energy and time and taxes into really strong education, local community serves all of us well because those kids will one day be our dentists and our leaders in, in politics and so on and, and fixing our cars. And it just raises everybody when education is going well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the other idea that, you know, I, I'm kind of disappointed that fine and performing arts is the first thing to go. in a lot of times when there's economic disparity, when those are the very things where students find meaning and we have overwhelming research. There's, there's not a doubt in, in anybody's mind that fine and performing arts significant participation in that actually improves participation in all the other subjects that we call core, whatever that might be, the main subjects. Mm-hmm. And so we're shooting ourselves in the collective foot by diminishing that. Uh, mm-hmm. That I thought would be better by this point. And then number of teachers who are, um, I'm disappointed, number of teachers who are uh, not trained in uh, learning disabilities, uh, moderate autism, moderate spectrum, you know, Asperger's, things like that because a lot of those kids are in our classes and we need to respond to them. And it's just as legitimate as any other kid in the class. And we need regular ed to have some training in those things. Special ed getting in the hands of regular ed teachers, I guess is what I'm trying to say would be helpful. And then I thought we would do be doing block scheduling 
you know, extended length classes because we realized how unbelievably inappropriate 50 minute classes in a constant stampede through the day tires anybody and you can't really learn the stuff we we know better and if we had set up schools way back in the day with what we know today about how the brain learns we wouldn't have set them up like this right this this kind of conveyor belt thing and so that that bothers me a lot i thought we should have evolved by now Mm -hmm. and then uh one thing that has disappointed me of late is technology and using it for its own sake rather than looking at the pedagogical principles and finding tech to support that and so they're doing tech because it's tech not because it's useful you know and not because it's valuable or reflects what we know about how the brain learns Mm -hmm. and i just want to be very cautious with that you know isti is really exciting to go to the isti conference and and any education conference and technology conference but it really has to be purposeful and used in a thoughtful way i've lost count on the number of teachers who i've been observing and mentoring and they've spent 20 minutes trying to get the tech to work or to integrate it in. And they could have done it much better in about two minute chalk drawing and an old chalkboard. Right. They could have conveyed way more or using the student's bodies to model something. And, and the tech got in the way, you know, it, it took yeah. away from the momentum, away from the effectiveness. So that's another disappointment, I guess, yeah. to some degree. Yeah. But, oh, I guess the other thing, last thing is um, like teachers pay teachers sometimes at that mm-hmm. website and that company and others, I've seen an increase in the number of things that are sold as, oh, here's my stuff I made up that are using materials from other people and mm-hmm. are not giving attribution to that. Citations. And that's been very disappointing that, you know, you write a book and you say, here's my great idea, but that's actually an idea that I saw in this other person's book, you know, 15 years ago. Right. I don't mind if you want to promote it. It's fine, but just remind them where it came from. That would be yeah. good. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm ranting a little bit. No, no, it's, it's Those okay. are my disappointment. <clears throat> I know you've experienced that. I have too, where you happen to catch a glimpse of something. It doesn't happen often, but you catch a glimpse of something online or a slide or a quote on Twitter and you go, that sounds awfully familiar. Yeah, it does. <laughs> awfully familiar. <laughs> you know, I, um, I was thinking as you were going through your list there, grading for sure is, you know, something that I still frequently will, will say to participants and and people I work with, um, you know, we've been teaching to standards for at least two decades, if not longer. And yet here we sit in 2021 and the notion of grading based on the achievement of those standards is still controversial. That's that standards. Yeah. Well, we had Benjamin Bloom and mastery learning exactly launched us. Right. And so that was in the sixties, you know, we we should know by now, but in the other bigger picture um, you mentioned, you know, just with the publicly funded system, you know, and I don't know what the answer to this is, but public school, especially is always sold as the great equalizer. Yeah. I don't think it's ever lived up to that because to this day, we know that zip code is still a major factor in your achievement levels. And, and so I don't know what the answer to that is really. I haven't really, you know, kicked that can down the road very long, but you know, public publicly funded systems are, like I said, sold to be that great equalizer. And yet are they fulfilling that promise? It's, you know, I, we don't want to harp on the disappointments. There's a lot to be disappointed with. And a generation from now, there'll be another podcast asking about where, what would you think we'd be further along? And they'll have a, a list of things as well, because that's just how it goes. However, yeah. I want to, I want to finish with the positives, because I know that's, that's, uh, you know, that's your okay. disposition and your optimism and all of that. Let's finish with something a little more upbeat. Um, what breakthroughs do you think education is on the verge of making? Like, I don't mean this flippantly, like, uh, cause I'm with you on the tech. I think sometimes we have to say to people, 
what do you want to do? And then find the tech that does that as opposed to just grabbing the latest technology that someone's, you know, thrown out there on Twitter. So I don't mean this flippantly from the point of view of what's the next fad or what's the next trend, but I mean, like, what is the next big thing that educators should be preparing themselves for? And most importantly, should be really excited about? Well, I, it was hard for me to limit myself to one as I was thinking about that. Uh, so, sorry, man. Go for it. <laughs> it may well, not the be floor, cogent. The, the, the microphone is yours, my friend. Go ahead. Uh, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking that more and more people are going to do is we look at personalized instruction uh, and then what has happened with online tutorials mm -hmm. and, you know, people using online learning, remote instruction and so on is I do think there's going to be increased interest in what colleges have been exploring. And, and I know that some high schools, but not very many, have been exploring it. But now I think it's going to go high schools and middle schools and maybe elementary. And that's micro-credentialing and digital badges yeah. that will follow you throughout your school year. So I will have a digital badge that represents my, my actual training and certification in Python mm -hmm. that will follow me wherever I go or C++, whatever. But it also might be in in German, and it might be in French. And the idea that instead of a staid approach of a, a stagnant, you, know, you always have to take this, you always have to take this, there are gonna be some core classes I take, but then I get to personalize and make my own journey and carve my own degree, so to speak. And yeah, colleges have been doing that uh, for a while, but I've seen it now more and more with high schools. Museums now are uh, quite a bit, are, are, are a number of them are doing digital badges. You get a training in archaeology because you did, you know, a one, two, or three-day course on it. It's now certified, and you pass some tests, and you're kind of, you know, at least initially certified in that particular thing. So that's going to be huge. I've also been talking a lot about uh, with my daughter, in fact, who's um, graduated in GIS four or five years ago, Geographic Information Systems, in the School of Engineering, about you know the visualization and graphic portrayal of data. And I think that millennials and younger, and a lot of people are their millennials are in the teaching force right now. Right. But certainly the next generation, the generation we're currently that's currently in school, are very comfortable with graphic representation of knowledge. Whereas people in my generation, it's a slower, it's a steeper curve right. to do that. But the idea of visualization of knowledge as a way to teach that, and then through that, the revelation of patterns otherwise unseen, mm -hmm. uh, political. I, I, my daughter and I have been talking about this with cartography. You know, if I draw a map a certain way, that person has a lot of power. Politics, kings have been tumbled because of the way a map was drawn. Yeah. Today, with satellite imagery, we can see a lot of cobalt deposits in a certain region of the country, and you're cobalt rich. But I can change the color scheme, and suddenly there's no cobalt there. And you're like, you have no cobalt, and you're not rich, and so your power wanes. So the, the manipulation of graphics, mm -hmm. and but using graphics to reveal things, and I think that has power in grading, too, that we report graphically how you're doing against standards and learner outcomes, not just symbolically with a letter grade, a percentage, a rubric number, is, yeah. is huge and is coming down the road. Yeah. Uh, that'll be an exciting thing. Yeah. I'm also, this might be naivete. Uh, it might be just hopeful thinking. But I'm thinking as we're getting farther and farther away, more entrenched in our own little self-serving communities, there is going to be a, 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 an opposite reaction of saying, whoa, we need to come together again. And I'm finding that outdoor education and environmental ed kind of stuff, ropes mm -hmm. courses will make a resurgence. You know, a lot of offices of um, risk management in some schools were like, oh, no, don't do a ropes course. 
uh, don't go hiking in that steep mountain. Don't yeah. do don't do that dangerous. Th You're gonna go see kayaking? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> and this is actually, I think we're gonna go back into um, adventure touring or eco touring. Yeah. And more of the ropes course. We're gonna take the kids out on a ropes camp course uh, for a whole day or two days. I think that's gonna make a resurgence, and that's gonna be a positive because it's gonna bring us back to. My highest calling is to serve, and I find meaning in that rather right. than I am so entitled to this. Right. You know, in other words, how am I a hindrance to our advancement, or how am I helping our advancement? Am I solving mm -hmm. the problem? I'm not. I think that will come back. Yeah, that will be uh, quite exciting. Um, I think we're also going to have a real serious heart to heart with the extent to which we give power to standardized test scores yeah. as being the sole diagnostic of a teacher's performance, let alone a student's <laughs> performance. Yeah. Oh my gosh, don't get me yeah. started on value added measures yeah. as we do that. And then um, the, the renewed focus on the haves and have nots, trying to close that up. Oh, big thing will be uh, University of British Columbia, Simon Fraser, uh, uh, McGill, uh, yeah. all the education universities are gonna now have to reflect teacher realities right. and the online stuff. And so, you know, Right now, they might have professors working who don't teach according to the reality of the modern classroom. Right. And there's going to be a call on teacher preparation programs to change. Yeah. I also think, and you could say cynically or happily, I don't know, but we're going to improve our online tutorials because we've had to. Yeah. And so with that, those are, there's going to be a, comma, a commodifying of that. Right. So there's going to be a lot more merchandising and people are going to quit the teaching field and just do online stuff. Toward that end, I think some schools are doing it wisely where I've heard of two teachers now are going to have two classes. They're going to share their classes. Mm -hmm. One teacher is going to do the live asynchronous and another teacher is going to spend all the time just designing the synchronous online modules mm -hmm. and, you know, the interactive bit with that as they do that. And they're going to now have what 50, 60 kids between them, but you're not going to have the teacher who does just the live teaching, just live teaching and also has to do the online tutorials. Right. That's going to split it. That's good. And yeah. I'm really excited about this. I think there's going to be a resurgence in uh, year-round school. We're going to get away from the whole summer off because so many kids are missing things and they feel like they need to keep up or urgent and regular in their lives. And I think that will open things up uh, quite a bit as right. they do that. And then just the, what we mentioned before, and I'm excited about this, that people will feel like they can be gently insubordinate with the school's calendar. The timeline that, you know, yeah, the kid yeah. didn't learn in this amount of time, he gets more time. Who cares? He learned earlier, then right. don't admire him and what he already knows, move on. Yeah. But you don't have to be beholden to an arbitrary timeline imposed mm -hmm. in the next generation, Absolutely. which is flies blind to everything we know about human psychology and the way students learn. So those are, that's my top list. Yeah, I don't know of anything a, else beyond that. <laughs> that's, that is a lot to be excited about for sure. And if, if even half of that came true, uh, I can't imagine the transformation we would see uh, in education. Rick, I really appreciate uh, this conversation. Um, I know it's just the first of many times that we will uh, convene here on the podcast and, and looking to, at some point in the future, have you come back for you know, a specific question or a conversation about assessment or grading yeah. or have conversations about differentiation. So we're going to finish up today. Uh, uh, so I appreciate that. We're going to finish up today with a segment that I've now sort of rebranded as three questions. Uh, I used to ask five, but now I've cut it to three just uh, to for the sake of efficiency. So I'm going to ask you three lighthearted questions 
so listeners can get to know Rick a little bit more on a personal level. No, nothing too interesting. And I'm sorry, Tom. Our time is up. Thank you for playing our game. <laughs> That's right. Go ahead. All right. So here's the first one. <clears throat> what what junk food is your kryptonite? It's, it is the junk food that you simply cannot resist and you will overindulge every single time. Oh, well, pecan pie is my, especially if it's chocolate pecan pie, okay. but that's not really a junk food, but that's one I can't resist no matter what, wherever I am. I, I might say Milky Way bars. Okay. Um, or chocolate covered marshmallow, anything. Oh, no, I know. Milk duds. I know milk that sounds duds. really weird, but I like <laughs> chewy and I like uh, a little chocolate and caramel. So yeah, milk duds. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah. Well, pecan pie is not healthy, Rick. So it is I know. Kind of junk food. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's true. It's yeah, true. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's a decadence. I don't there know. There you go. I know. My, mine is uh, peanut butter cups. I could probably oh, eat yeah. 17 of them without batting an eye and then pay for oh, it. But man. In the midst of it, I, I can't resist. All right. Now I'm asking this next question more from the fun angle, not the serious angle. Okay. Okay. So what isn't illegal that should be illegal? What isn't illegal? What isn't illegal from a fun perspective, not from a from a not from a serious perspective. So I'll I'll give you my example. My yeah. example is it should be illegal in 2021 to pay by check when you're in a store. That should be illegal. Oh, pull out your checkbook. Okay, that should be outlawed. That's really clever. <laughs> okay, no one should be able to pull out their checkbook, especially if the cashier has already totaled your amount, and you're then going, "Oh, where's my check?" I don't think many people pay by check anymore, but if they do, it should be outlawed. That's mine. <laughs> Any thoughts? Uh, what is an illegal? I, I was just thinking of serious ones when you said that. I mean, like, <laughs> you shouldn't be able to get an adjusted rate mortgage. You know, an arm. <laughs> if you don't have the capacity to follow through when it changes, you know, yeah, in three years yeah. or ten years, yeah, or whatever it is, um, that was that's too serious. Yeah, uh, wait, I don't know. I, some forms of bungee jumping. There you go. <laughs> uh, would would be uh, it should be illegal. Yeah, uh, but it is illegal in some places. But we do it nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, I. Any unwritten? Oh, I know. About, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I was saying drones, man. We got so <laughs> many drones <clears throat> flying around the neighborhood, and I'm yeah. just so afraid. You know, they're gonna knock into something, or knock something yeah. over, or fly into birds. Mm -hmm. um, you know, their drones can be fun for filming, maybe fly up once in a while. But the yeah. idea that everybody gets a drone and that Amazon might start delivering, well, is in some places delivering by drone. I think should be illegal. All right, just, thank you. Just wait until the crash has happened. The other one I was thinking was uh, when you're boarding a plane, it should be illegal to pretend you're mindlessly wandering up to the front to read the screen when what you're really doing is trying to cut the line. We all know what's happening. We know what you're doing. Don't pretend you don't know where you're going and then go, oh, are we boarding now? And then slip into the line. We all know it's going on. That should be illegal. <laughs> oh, I know. Speaking of that, yeah. when you're at the gate and- yeah. It should be illegal for you to sit next to the only outlet in the entire gate area and you're not plugging anything in. Right. And the rest of us are trying to plug something in. Excuse me, can I sit on the floor at your yeah. and worship yeah. at your feet and just use the plug exactly. that you're yeah. not using? That's right. That's right. That should be illegal. Yeah, dude's paying a you have to pay a cover charge to use the outlet because he's yeah. sitting there blocking it. I know. All right, last one. Um what do you think would be the worst buy one, get one free sale of all time? <laughs> that what's, is so bizarre. What's the worst? The worst I, buy one, get one? Buy one, get one free. I was thinking accordions 
or bagpipes. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> What's the what worst? It would violin? be awful to get two of when you only really barely need one. Oh, I know your, your personal colos uh, uh, colonoscopy kit. <laughs> that would be the worst. <laughs> That's oh right. That'd be God. the worst. Here we go again, Mr. Warmly. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Well, sir, Taking you bought it down the, the wrong road there. That's right. You bought two. You might as well. Anyway, let's I just keep it going. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, last question. One final question. We're going to get back to being a little bit serious here. One of the things, Rick, that I'm doing with the podcast, big big picture, is trying to focus on the concepts of you know, success and happiness. And, and uh, you know, down the road with the podcast, I may start to expand and, and, and bring in some different, maybe non-educators and talk about these topics. But for now, what I'm trying to do with the interview is, is finish the interview by asking this one simple question of everyone who's been on the podcast. And that is, if a random person stopped you on the street and said, and or asked you, what is your definition of success? Uh, how would you answer them? Probably... I don't know, three parts, I guess I'm thinking again. One is is to love and to love fiercely. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be a person, it could be an experience, but to, to love, to have that you know devotion, that dedication. Second is to remedy injustice. Mm -hmm. That I feel like I've succeeded when I have remedied a wrong or changed a wrong, corrected a wrong, or remedied an injustice. Something that was unethical that I I changed if, and somebody's aspect or or success was able to do that. And then I think to, to be able to see the world through new eyes mm -hmm. on, on a regular basis would be very successful. If you see it through the tired, same old filter and lens, um, there's probably not much out there for you. But to constantly conduct yourself in such a manner is one that you're accessible. Other people see you as approachable. Mm -hmm. But then you choose, it, it, I guess it's a gentle form of empathy, but to be able to see it through different eyes and then to come at the same things and see it anew, like I think T.S. Eliot once said, is the ultimate goal, is yeah. to see it through the child's eyes and see it constantly anew. Um, that's quite a bit of success in your life. So I'll just take those three. Uh, Bob, uh, what do I win? <laughs> <laughs> you, you win the prize for uh, what I think is an inspiring and, uh, and deep answer. I really appreciate that, Rick. Rick, um, uh, just I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Uh, again, I look to have you uh, back at some point in the future to, I, I always appreciate your perspective, your humor, your wisdom, uh, and I think listeners do as well. So listeners, I would really encourage you to follow Rick on Twitter. Uh, he is a, a great Twitter follow, lots of great content, and, and lots of great inspiration from Rick himself. Uh, that's at Rick Warmly 2 the number two. Uh, at Rick Warmly too is uh, the Twitter handle, and uh, also to check out Rick's website, some some great resources there, uh, information about how to book Rick for trainings and and consultations, etc. That's www.rickwarmly.com. Rick, uh, thanks again for being here, and I really look forward to next time. Hey Tom, thank you for all you do for our profession and humanity. We're lucky to have you. I appreciate that, Rick. Thanks so much. Have a great day. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to address the idea of atypical assessment methods. Now, given the length of the interview with Rick, I'm going to split this into two parts. So part two will come next week. Today I'm going to talk about the why, and next week we'll talk about the how. And my focus today is going to be on 
engineering conversations and observations. Now, COVID has, of course, forced us to reconsider what counts as authentic evidence of learning. Now, that was a conversation that I think was long overdue, but the fact that it happened is really a positive. Now, let's be clear. Everything is evidence that teachers can use to make summative judgments about learning. If you feel compelled to only have traditional, tangible evidence of learning, then I would say that once this segment is finished, maybe go back and listen to the opening segment about professional judgment. Now, evidence is evidence, and all evidence can assist teachers in making sound decisions. Now, that doesn't mean everything should be quantified and entered into the gradebook, but everything students do is evidence to help shape teacher judgment. In order to be as learner-responsive as possible, as equitable as possible, as inclusive as possible, and as culturally responsive as possible, we have to force ourselves to embrace atypical demonstrations of learning, including the areas I mentioned, the idea of engineering conversations and observations. Now, I want to illustrate a level of awareness here. I'm, I'm calling these atypical demonstrations because they are atypical when compared to sort of white Eurocentric definitions of success. They're most certainly not atypical, quote unquote, in many other cultures. I'm just using that term to merely provide a contrast for comparison, right? So, um, but so many of these practices are embedded in cultures historically. So where, for example, is storytelling most prominent? Well, of course, North American indigenous communities and cultures, but also native Hawaiian cultures and Certainly, many sub-Saharan African cultures also have that tradition. Those are just to name a few. Now, storytellers in most cultures were essentially meant to do two things. One of two things. One was to entertain and the other was to educate. So not only does embracing atypical assessment methods provide the broadest possible ways to elicit evidence during remote or hybrid learning, they also allow us to authentically add more culturally responsive ways of assessing. Now, I'm planning on doing a much more deeper dive, uh, a more detailed look at the idea of culturally responsive assessment in a future podcast. Uh, probably going to be a solo podcast where I have a little bit more time to kind of dig deeper. All right. Okay. So back, back to conversations. Cassandra, Nicole, and I wrote about this in the book Instructional Agility. So why engineering conversations? Well, for learners, they gain a deeper understanding when they talk about what they are learning. And for teachers, we gain as teachers a deeper insight into learners' thinking when we have them articulate and talk about their learning. That provides us with more accurate information to interpret, and it allows us to make instructional maneuvers within sort of the instructional process. What are the benefits? Well, Obviously, for teachers, it gives us the opportunity to observe speaking and listening skills, so we get a chance to, to assess that. It also promotes productive group work and gives us the opportunity to teach things like collaboration. For students, engaging in conversations is an opportunity to co-create meaning, to uh, you know gather emerging evidence from others they're listening to, and it kind of shifts the power, doesn't it? It it allows students or forces students in many ways to be actively involved. Um, it depends on how deep the conversation is. It might be require some research or it might require, you know, some in-depth analysis. So students will have to be actively involved 
in order to participate in the conversation. And of course, for both students and teachers, here's the opportunity to be inclusive and equitable. But that inclusivity and equity really can't be assumed, nor should we think it's automatic. Okay, so details matter. Precision in planning matters. Specificity with prompts matters. Protocols matter. So we'll get into some of those details next week. We need to push each other to put conversations, debates, discussions, storytelling on par with other more traditional forms of assessment. Now, partially because very little of what we communicate actually comes from the words we speak or, or write. And, and you miss some of this when everything is in written form or typed form, right? The vast majority of what we communicate comes from facial expressions and paralinguistic patterns, right? So paralanguage that modifies meaning or gives nuanced meaning or, or conveys emotion, right? So things like pitch or volume, intonation, cadence, tone, all of that also communicates where learners are. Now, the bigger picture of conversations is observations, the idea that teachers would observe learning. And deeper learning means teachers are going to require students to produce more complex demonstrations of learning. So that's going to increase our use of performance assessments. And a lot of times those performance assessments will end up being anchored around demonstrations that teachers will be able to touch in the sense of a project or hear or see um, in order to assess them. So observations provide prime opportunities for, for teachers to make instructional maneuvers, but also prime opportunities to gather evidence. Again, fight the temptation to think all evidence has to be tangible. With so many digital platforms and apps right now, there's no shortage of opportunities to elicit evidence through these atypical demonstrations. Now we'll talk details next week, but for now, if you're hesitant, don't be. Evidence is evidence. So these formats are just as valid. Okay, unless the standard says so, there's no reason a constructed response can't be oral. Now, administrators, you have to give sponsorship to this idea. Now, you might inadvertently be the one standing in the way of a more expansive view of valid evidence. Right. I said inadvertently because I don't think you're doing this on purpose. So maybe take inventory on whether or not this is happening. You might not be, but maybe you are. One clue would be that if you are obsessed with gradebook entries, uh, then, you know, especially those policies where we say we need X number of grades in the gradebook per week, then you just might be in some small, medium, or large way getting in the way of this expansive view of what evidence looks like. So, okay, details next week, but for now, it's time to accept a more expansive view of what quality evidence looks like. That's all we have for today. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. My personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer. And also please email your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions or feedback you have for me. It's TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. And again, as I said in the opening, uh, don't forget to check out the YouTube channel uh, where I'm going to be adding a lot of different features uh, for 2021. Next week, my guest will be Katie Novak. We are going to explore everything about universal design for learning. So I'm really looking forward to that. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. That seems to be where your ratings and subscriptions go a long way to expanding the listening audience. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.